Welcome to Wisdom.mba, a podcast where I interview business school students, professors, and alums. We look to share wisdom, focusing on the hard lessons learned through different career, school, and business endeavors, and share insights into how you can put a business school education to best use. On today's podcast, I interview Tommy Sowers, who's a true Renaissance man with an incredible resume. He's an entrepreneur, academic, politician, and a decorated military officer with an 11-year career in the Army, having achieved the rank of major. He has taught at West Point, the University of Missouri, and Duke University. He also served as the Assistant Secretary of the Department of Veteran Affairs. Tommy is currently the president of Fly Exclusive, which is the fastest growing private aviation company in the United States, located in Kinston, North Carolina. Tommy and I discuss the future of private aviation and how COVID-19 has impacted the demand for private jet ownership. Tommy also talks about co-founding Golden Key, a venture-backed firm which disrupted the buying and selling of homes. The company raised $3.7 million in funding and was sold in 2018. Tommy graduated first in his class at the Special Forces Qualification Course, and we talk about how his military training and time as a Green Beret prepared him for diverse leadership challenges. Tommy completed his undergraduate degree from Duke University and earned a Master's of Science and PhD from the London School of Economics. This episode has a lot of great insights on leadership, dealing with adversity, and adapting to different work environments and situations. Also, if you have dreams or aspirations of flying private or owning a jet, you'll want to tune in. So with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tommy Sowers. Tommy, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the podcast. I always like to start off with a bit of an icebreaker to sort of get to know you uh, a little bit better. So you did your undergraduate uh, degree at Duke University. Um, so, and I'm a huge basketball fan, and I'm assuming you are as well. Who's your yep. favorite Duke basketball player, and, and give me a reason why. I think it, so when I go to road games, which I try to do once a year, because then you truly get what Duke faces out there. I usually wear my JJ Redick jersey and, you know, he, he was such an incredible player and so loathed, uh, so loved by Duke and loathed uh, elsewhere. And he just and he just took it and fed off of it. So uh, you know, always disappointed he didn't get a national championship. But JJ is uh, is is clearly at the top of my list. Yeah, and recently retired, and um, you know, really got in shape to go into the NBA. I didn't know how well he would transition from college to NBA, but bulked up. Still a great shooter. He's also a big watch guy. And um, yeah, he's he's very much a you gotta love either love him or hate him. I did want to ask you about. Uh, Marshall Plumley. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, Marshall is um, a seven-footer, played at Duke. Uh, both his brothers have had great NBA careers and are both still in the NBA. But he's a seven-footer, and he's an active-duty U.S. Army Ranger qualified infantry officer. So, I, you know, as someone who's gone through Special Forces training and Ranger school, how does a seven-footer do it? Like, can you fit in a helicopter? I've just always, I always, I can't, I can't, I can't ask him personally, but I'm just curious. Well, it had been tough for him because when you go through these classes, you, you really don't want to stand out. You, you don't want to be picked out. And I'm, you know, I'm sure as, as the ranger instructors surveyed around the formations, there's this head sticking out a foot above everyone else. So uh, but I'm sure he could carry massive loads. So I bet he was really popular with his uh, squad mates on that. But it, you know, Marshall's 
Marshall's story is a great one. I know he he came back and brought some Rangers to Duke for the Duke Army game earlier this season. And I'm sure that he got plenty of leadership lessons from Coach K that he's uh, he's applying in the military. Yeah, I was actually at that game. I didn't get to see him. I think he was there in the audience, but I did see on Instagram that the Rangers were there as well. Great story. I'd encourage anyone to check it out. And, you know, you always have to commend uh, someone who has great NBA prospects. And I know he did. He played a bit in the NBA. And then he was, um, I think, a National Guard Reserveman. Um, but fantastic story. And um, encourage anyone to check it out. You got to love guys that can then take that path. Um you know, that he has, but that's interesting. He, I'm sure he can, he can carry, certainly carry his load. So right. let's jump into it now. I want to go straight into talking about private jet travel and sort of sales during uh, the COVID era. So a recent article that I read is entitled private jet sales and flight soar during pandemic travel confusion. It states that in 2021, private jet flight hours are expe- were expected to increase by almost 50% over prior year, uh, accounting for sort of a COVID lull. And the increase in the use of business jets, they're saying, cannot solely be, you know, uh, a function of the corona pandemic, but, you know, people seeking greater comfort, ease of use, and shared private jet programs like you guys run are providing, you know, more opportunities for folks to fly private. So my, my first question is, you know, You've been the president of uh, Fly Exclusive now for about seven months. You know, you have access to historical data. How has COVID uh, impacted the demand for your services and your fleet? Well, it's certainly increased. So we're year, year over year up 50%. And we also compare this to, say, December of 2019. And we are, you know, hugely up and not just in we we have a larger fleet now, but also that fleet utilization is up. So there we are seeing record high demand and we've made this is a very fast growing carrier. So we started with two jets in 2015 and we're at about 80 uh, right now. And so really the fastest growing a private uh, jet charter operator out there. And we're going to continue to do that uh, this year as we just increase our capacity on this. And we, you know, we see this with, I, I don't want to get too much into the, the meta thinking out there, but th- there were so many weddings canceled, trips canceled, father, son, mother, daughter, uh, you know, reunions canceled over the, over the past years. And one of our philosophies is minutes matter. We are fundamentally in the business of minutes to save people time when they're when they're traveling. And we're seeing that in that people that had you know pushed off trips and said, I'll do that sometime in the next couple of years. Well, those two years are gone now. So they, they want to you know, book those those trips for their, for them and their loved ones. And and we're one of the premier carriers for them. Yeah, and that's a fascinating look. And I think everybody can sort of relate to that, that, I mean, this was really a fundamental shift in time became that important asset. Are, are, are you seeing the demographic shift more? Like what, what did the demographic look like in 2019? Was that predominantly business travel? And now you're saying, okay, we have families that have postponed weddings. They have more disposable income. Are you truly seeing a shift in, in demographics? We we certainly have so you know company travel is still way off what it what it used to be, 
And so, but that has been completely replaced and expanded by an expansion of, you know, personal travel on, on this. So, you know, I think a lot of folks that had considered this, I mean, it's certainly much more expensive than flying commercially, but the convenience of point to point, the convenience of, you know, uh, you know, not going into crowded airports and uh, just getting there and not burning, you know, if you've got five days uh, to travel, uh, burning two days of that on connections and security and driving to the, you know, kind of the major hub air airports. So, you know, we offer a very flexible program where our Jet Club members come in, they give us a deposit, they let us know four days out where they want to travel. And, you know, one of our uh, floating fleet of jets will be there to, uh, you know, to take them uh, to their destination. So, it, you know, it's convenience, it's flexibility, it's safety. We've got the highest safety rating in the industry. And, um, and I, to answer your question on the core demographic, sure. And, you know, it's still high net worth individuals, but, uh, but I, not, I think I know a number of folks that maybe didn't allocate this proportion of their income or uh, savings into travel that that proportion of people is growing. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to sort of talk people through, because I literally just did my first private flight this year. And I think it's helpful to just sort of describe the process because yeah, if you're busy and you have kids, time is critically important. So we had a, our scheduled takeoff at RDU um, was at like one thirty. And I left like 20 minutes before our flight. You drive right up to the tarmac, you park in front of the jet, they unload the luggage, and then you take off. And then when you land, we landed on an international flight. As soon as we hit the ground and, and we taxied to where we were going to get out, our cars were there on the tarmac. And the uh, border TSA guard just came into the plane, looked at our passports, and we were out. So the sheer amount of like struggle and time that was saved was was kind of phenomenal. Yeah. So again, you know, our, our motto is 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 minutes matter. But uh, you know, I, I believe you told me you you were flying internationally. I think you know to Mexico, and so if you're doing that from Raleigh Durham, you're you're connecting somewhere. Um, you know maybe not the most efficient connection, then you're going through, you know, customs and it could be an hour, it could be, you know, it could be shorter. But, you know, as people start looking at, at this of, hey, I've got five days or I've only got four days with the kids out of school, how can I get where I want to go faster? And, you know, our planes don't fly faster than than commercial jets, but just that that ground logistics is, you know, taking out hours and in sometimes days and especially if you're not located you know i'm i'm we're based in kinston uh, north carolina which is about an hour and 45 minutes east of durham so you know you add in that that additional travel time and parking and getting the kids and i i know you've got two girls I, I, at one point i um, one of one of my commercial travel, which is the vast majority of my travel, you know, one one of my girls stripped down completely naked after going through security and then having some meltdown, and it it just the 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 difference of traveling, especially with kids, and of course you can bring your pets and all that on the on these jets if you if you want to is is pretty extraordinary. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up kids because yeah, I've I've taken my uh, 
10-year-old and my 7-year-old daughter on commercial flights and like most people and like my 7-year-old would literally lick the floor uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's just like germ-ridden central uh but yeah i heard you speak on another podcast that traveling with kids is like which level of hell am i going to enter on this trip and <laughs> yeah. um you know your your marketing material shows young families boarding aircrafts and you know i it, it is expensive. There's no question about it. But I think to your point, like parents can start to perhaps begin to justify that expense for that ease, the simplicity and starting off a vacation, not wanting to like get divorced and, and, and like kill your family, basically. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's it, well, and it, you know, I, I have a seven, five, four, uh, four and one, almost two year old, all, all girls. And, you know, we've traveled a lot with, with two year olds and it's just a wrestling match, you know, all of them. I got sweet girls. I love them, but they get on a plane and I'm just like wrestling with them for, you know, two and a half hours on that. So you, you arrive exhausted, you know, you know, you've got a connection. So there, there's just a, there, as you said, you just can't, I don't want to spoil my kids, you know, on this, but, but, you know, the difference of waking up, driving 10 minutes to the airport, five minutes later, you're airborne, you can land at different airports that may be closer to your, you know, much closer to your final destination. It's just, it's hours. It's, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a five day trip actually can turn into five enjoyable days instead of two hellish days and, and three days of recovery in the middle. Well, one other thing that I found was interesting is that there's this totally different experience. I mean, you sort of get it in smaller commercial planes, uh, but when you're cruising at 41,000 feet, which is higher than you know, most jetliners, that's probably like the highest I've ever been. And you have those big oval windows on like a private jet. It has this, and, and then it's pressurized. And I, I'm assuming I'm just being pumped full of a good oxygen. I don't know. Um, but it has this really sort of like space feel that you just, I've never had in any other experience that can become highly addictive um, and just very relaxing in and of itself. And then, of course, you have an open bar. So <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that also helps, too, of course. Um, but then I want to talk a little bit about the economics. So that that uh, article that I referenced, you know, the the. Um, one of the quotes from a Bain and Company um, consultant that specializes in aviation, you know, he was saying that, you know, they fundamentally believe that people want to travel, obviously, post-COVID and as things start to open up. But he was saying that it likely won't be until like 2025 before, you know, commercial airlines return to like 2019 levels, you know, and we're even seeing that uh, right now with, you know, harder to book pilots and crew and just cancellations. So my question here is, is, is commercial aviation starts to suffer during COVID with staffing shortages and you're seeing this 50% growth year over year with private aviation, you know, do you think that in general, more investment dollars are going to be going into private av aviation companies such as yours? Um, like for instance, I looked at your website and all the, all the, the fleet is basically sold out that was available for purchase. So I'm just, you know, step back a second, just look at the industry in general. Um, are you seeing this, you know, influx of investment, uh, just talk us through the industry in general. Well, on the investment side, so, you, you know, we had our first uh, uh, major charter company, Wheels Up, go public uh, last year. Uh, KKR just did a significant investment in Jet Edge. Uh, of course, uh, you know, 
top investor of all time, Warren Buffett, and is uh, you know an owner of NetJets and Abu Dhabi uh, Private Equity, I believe, is the Vista XO you know source of funds. So, so to answer the question is yes. I mean, I, I objectively that there is a lot more interest in this industry. And it's still a heavily fragmented industry. So you have this, you have, you know, four or five large carriers like us, and then you have this incredibly long tail of two jet operators, 10 jet operators. And I would imagine that you will see some consolidation in that, especially as these investment dollars uh, come through. And also, as you see, uh, you know, our bet, uh, which is that some there are some models out there that are more kind of Uber for private jets, like take the booking and then we'll go out to that long tail uh, or we'll go out to even people like us and and fulfill it. What what we've discovered and, and our customers love is 99 percent uh, and sometimes, you know, closer to 100 percent of our customers fly on our jets. And, you know, when you're taking your family in a little aluminum tube at, you know, 43,000 feet, you know, knowing that uh, we own our planes, we own our pilots, we do our maintenance, we do our paint, we do our interiors. We have a consistent and very high uh, delivery of product is that has made Fly Exclusive somewhat the bell of the ball right now. So other folks that bet on, I'll just take the booking and go out to the market and, and find the lift. They are uh, they are suffering right now, and you see it in. Uh, I'm kind of jumping around, but you know the, the the same pressures on the commercial industry, whether it's parts or you know flight attendants or pilots, that also affects us. So we track that very closely, and you know we are in a a knife fight uh, for for labor for qualified labor. Uh, so. So yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a very exciting time for our space, and aviation tends to be somewhat cyclical, but we we don't see the floor going going back to the same level of the floor, you know, when and if the next uh, correction comes. Now, is the knife fight specifically for pilots, or is it crew, or is it qualified uh, maintenance, or is it kind of a combination of all? Well, it's, you know, it's really all, I mean, specifically in pilots, uh, my chief pilot sent me a, a note that American Airlines is going to hire 70 pilots a week right now. And, you know, there's, there's COVID impacts of all this, you know, we have a number of pilots that are out, you know, right now. So, uh, you know, for us, we've got these 80 very expensive airframes out there and if we if we can't staff enough pilots that is a huge uh, issue for us so i actually just left a meeting on pilot recruiting and the health of our health of our air crew which is much better than it was 90 days ago but is not where it needs to be so i imagine that this uh fight for talent is going to continue for quite some time now you're uh, have a fantastically decorated military career. Are you able to leverage that and you know talk about um, your recruitment uh, for service men and women uh, from the Air Force? And um, you know has that worked to your advantage? Has that been a great pipeline? Uh, how are you helping um, you know service men and women transition and um, find them work? Well, certainly just simply because where we're located. So we're, we're in Eastern North Carolina. We're about 30 minutes from a major Air Force base in Goldsboro. 
We're about an hour and 15 minutes from the largest marine base in the world, Camp Lejeune, uh, about three hours to Norfolk, uh, the largest naval base, and about you know two hours to Fort Bragg, the largest army base. So it's no surprise we have a lot of veterans and former servicemen and women that work for us. Our pilots are a little bit different because we have a unique model where they can live wherever they want and we have a floating fleet. So imagine there's not 80 jets coming here every night. They're out on the road and we want them out on the road. So we, you know, if a pilot lives in El Paso, uh, we're just going to, when they come on duty, we're just going to airline them to, you know, the closest jet or the you know best jet for them uh, to go on for their rotation. So um, recently, we've we've focused more in on military recruiting, uh, including rotary wing pilots. So we have a, a ton of Army aviators that are coming in. Have always wanted to fly fixed wing, and uh, they've got the hours, and we put them through the through the training on it. So uh, so we've had a lot of success recruiting military, both for the air crew and and for our staff here in Kinston. So it sounds to me that strategically, North Carolina has been fantastic from a recruiting and you do have the floating fleet, but how is, you know, North Carolina, you know, on the East coast are, are most of your, your missions and your routes, are they predominantly East coast? Are they international or are they just pretty much the entire world? Well, it, it is pretty much the entire world, but the, you know, the, the main, private jet uh, corridor is Teterboro to Palm Beach. And we are literally midway through that. So that is fantastic for us for if we need to bring jets uh, back to Kinston for paint, interior maintenance, they're, they're flying above us all the time. Uh, so, and, and that's one thing that is really the vision of our founder who sold his first aviation company in 2010 um, sold it to Delta Private Jets. Three years later, they closed down the Kinston operation, and he decided after the earnout, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a better company here. And this is a guy, Jim Seagrave, who could live anywhere in the world, and you know is fully committed uh, to this town. His kids go to the same school my kids go to, and th- that's one of the awesome things about this company is. I, I grew up in a small town and, uh, you know, manufacturing has left in a lot of Eastern North Carolina and uh, a lot of the agriculture has left. And so this is a real unique story of an innovative, fast growing technology company that's really leaning into not just like, ooh, Kinston, Eastern North Carolina, but hey, what are the strengths out here? Uh, we sit on the third largest airfield east of the Mississippi, a huge state investment. I don't I don't know. It, Imagine the Research Triangle Park, the state did the same thing here in Kinston of investing in this airfield to create a global logistics center. Uh, So we've got huge opportunity and we are doing this to grow. So if we want to get into the paint business or avionics business, we can do that in a way here that our competitors can't in their more metro airports. So, uh, you know, we're hour and 15 minutes to Raleigh, midway uh, down the, you know, midway through the, the largest trafficked area. And so there's some huge advantages for us, even being in a rural town. Well, and growth. I mean, with the amount of uh, companies and investment going into RTP, I'm assuming there'll be more uh, demand from a corporate standpoint. Fun fact, I did a low flyover, the second largest airstrip in the world. 
uh, we were down in uh, Cape Canaveral and we got approval to do a low 500 foot fly over the uh, airstrip where the uh, shuttle would land. So uh, <laughs> that was pretty fun. That was cool. Um, so anyways, um, but then I think the other thing too is that what I didn't realize um, is just a sheer amount of maintenance and safety regulations when it comes to your fleet. And it sounds to me too that, you know, maintenance facility and a, a good number of your jobs are going to be skilled trades men and women there in North Carolina. Is that correct? It is. And and again, it's an advantage of, of where we're at. So a year ago, we, uh, well, prior to that, we wanted to get into painting our own planes here. It's very expensive to do elsewhere. You got to fly the plane there. And so through support of the state and, you know, local, we've, we cut the ribbon. Uh, we started painting in April. We cut the ribbon in, in August on two state-of-the-art, uh, you know, electrostatic painting facilities. Uh, we're building a 40, well, it's almost done. Uh, it, we'll cut the ribbon on that in a month, a 48,000 square foot hangar that was just a field um, uh, really when I got here uh, that is going to house our G4s, house our new interiors. And then we're expanding into some of the most sophisticated avionics uh, and doing those installs here. And the, and the, the great thing about it, Gavin, is it's, it's almost like SimCity. You've got this runway that is that stretches forever and very few tenants down here. So if we want to build 20 more paint hangers and, you know, turn what is, you know, a cost center into a profit center, that's really the vision and the advantage of having your own fleet and, and, and seeking to get more and more vertically integrated. So it's, uh, again, uh, to answer your question, we, we, we grow folks here, uh, but then we also recruit a lot of people to the area that master interior technicians and avionics technicians as well. Yeah, you guys are like the Koenigsegg of, uh, of private jets. Uh, that's the supercar manufacturer. I think it's Swedish, uh, but they, they built their facility on an old decommissioned airstrip so that they can actually like test all their vehicles and their cars and their, their supercars, great engineering. Um, so that's very cool um, and uh, an awesome story for jobs creation and uh, wish you guys all the success and would encourage uh, anyone listening to check out uh, flyexclusive.com for more information. The last question I have on this one, and this is for all the super high net worth individuals listening to the podcast. <laughs> I don't know if they exist or not, uh, but talk us through the economics of actually owning a private jet that's part of your fleet. So let's just say, you know, I want to have a sort of super mid, like a Citation 10. Um, am I actually making money off that? Um, and just sort of walk us through that process so that we can dream and have have a goal to work towards one day. Yeah, it, it, we we offer a, a great program because, you know, the, the, the dream of own, owning a private jet rapidly runs into the reality of, Ah, I got to maintain this thing and, and I've got to staff pilots and they go on vacation and, and I've got to hanger this thing. So we, we basically, you know, uh, provide an, an excellent option for people that don't want the hassle. So we, we acquire a number of jets and then uh, we have a number of partners that then buy those jets from us. Um, they, the partners get to take advantage of the rapid depreciation really straight away on that. And then they receive a 10% of the value, uh, lease payment from us, uh, year over year. So, 
or, or for five years. So you buy a $5 million jet, you're getting $500,000 lease payment. And then the real key thing is then you get access to the entire fleet of 80 jets. So, uh, so you may have bought a, you know, CJ three or a light jet, but you want to fly to, to, I guess in your, your case, Cabo, well, then you can book a trip that is basically at cost, a little bit more than cost, but basically at cost. And you say, I want to fly from Raleigh Durham to, to Cabo on a larger size jet, then we get that jet there for you on, at the, the time and date. We take care of the pilot travel, all that. So you're still getting income. You still have this asset. Uh, you got the, um, and you get all the convenience of not just the limiting factors of, of owning one, but access to 80. All right. Technical question at flying at cost. Does that include booze? <laughs> that does include it. Uh, there you go. It. All right. So factor that into your calculus, guys, guys and gals, as you're listening. Uh, flat class, including booze, you heard it here. That's that's sort of the cherry on, on top because, you know, depending on your crew, you can uh, get through a good amount of uh, libations at 41,000 feet on your flight down to Cabo. Um, so switching gears now, we'll talk about Golden Key and sort of your um, – you know, career as an entrepreneur. So from 2015 to 18, you were the co-founder and CEO of Golden Key. It's a Durham-based venture-backed firm that was disrupting the buying and selling of homes. You raised 3.7 million in venture capital, including a round led by Lowe's Ventures. And then you had a successful um, exit. It was acquired in May of 2018. So talk us through the catalyst for, for launching the business. Well, you know, I came from a family of entrepreneurs and I've always admired them. I spent most of my career up until that time in, in the public sector, in the military and, and government service, brief stand at McKinsey. But, you know, I really came from a family of entrepreneurs and always wanted to do this. And so I'd explored, you know, a lot of ideas, both while I was in the military, when I was out, uh, everything from, you know, the like the aura ring that I've got on my finger right now, you know, a competitor to that earlier on. But, you know, this one really came from uh, a, 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 an acute problem. And the origin story was when I was buying my house in Chapel Hill, uh, moving out of DC, I was sitting outside the house and I was like, I want to get in this house, but I, I don't want to just call an agent just so they swing open the door. I already know, I just need to see it. And so I ended up breaking into the house. It was uh, it was an auction, so it was vacant. And um, and I saw it, and we bid on it and won it. And then when we went to settle up, um, it was different because it was an auction. And they said, "Well, you need to pay not just your auction win price, but the six percent on top of it, which of course is normally baked into the into the price." And that's a huge amount of money. And um, so it started there with that problem of like, wh why is there just this one way to buy and sell homes um, that, you know, ends up costing the average homeowner half of their gain by paying real estate commissions on both buying and selling, you you give up half of the average gain in, in home equity. And so it started there. And, uh, and I was a uh, uh, I was leaving the, uh, the Obama administration, headed uh, to teach for a year. And so I uh, found uh, two folks, uh, one a real estate agent, another a technologist to work on this over a year. And uh, we built an MVP and, um, 
found a lot of interest in this and and then decided I'd, you know, I'd leave Duke and, and take this on full-time as CEO. And what advice would you give to any founders looking to raise money? You, you raised a good chunk of cash and um, just what were some of the lessons you learned going through that process? Because it can be a, it can be a real grind. Yeah. Well, I mean, one would be that is, is, is get ready for the grind. And if you've got thin skin, like thicken up uh, because, and, and also kind of remove the emotion from it. One of the best advice I got is, especially when you're developing technology is like, you feel like this is your baby. And anytime you, someone says, no, it's like, is my baby ugly? You know, can't you see how beautiful this is? But it, it, it's just a thought. It's just an idea, especially early on. It's probably going to change over time. So, you know, kind of taking the emotion and each pitch is actually the product. The pitch is the product. And so you should be seeking feedback from day one and, you know, getting out there and doing live pitches with investors, knowing that 10 pitches in, you will be better and 20 pitches in, you will be better. But if you're like, you know, fuss, fussing around trying to get the PowerPoint perfect, you need to get out there and get in front of real folks and then take their feedback and then make the pitch deck better. Like that's that's the product. In the same way you're learning to iterate, you should be doing experimenting, trying new things in each each pitch. And then the last thing I'll say is when we went out initially to raise 250000 on a convertible note at, you know, kind of like a 1.2, um, you know, uh, valuation. And I went out to California and I sat down with an investor and made this pitch and uh, he's kind of a friendly person. He said, are you serious about this or is this kind of a hobby for you? Because if you're serious about this, you should be raising a proper seed round of, you know, one to one point five at a, you know, eight million pre money valuation. And you should just do that and try that starting now. And so we 8x the value of our company in a day as a result of that conversation of just like getting into the the rhythm of like what are the comps out there and and where i should be raising uh, right now so hopefully that's helpful for folks out there considering doing something like this yeah i'm hearing two things it's basically like your total addressable market and for you you know the home buying market in the u.s i don't know what the tam is but i imagine it's it's very large and it, you know you're a disruptive technology in that space so I'm hearing, you know, go big, set your sights higher. Uh, a larger TAM will will hopefully command a higher multiple. And then the other one is just good entrepreneurial advice. It's thick skin. Um, you know, a pitch deck is almost like a stand-up routine where it's all about reps and getting out there and, and having a few bombs uh, until you refine it, until it becomes really polished. Uh, but you're never going to have a solid pitch on the first, you know, five or six goes. It, it should be yeah. almost second nature. And I've been there and, and gone through that process myself. Well, and I, you know, that, that's a great, uh, that's a great analogy is, uh, you know, you know, you go watch these. I think there's a Louis CK out on Netflix where he's like testing out his material and he's clear, he's bombing, you know, and this is like one of, you know, one of the top comedians of our uh, you know, of our generation and you're watching that process, you know, work. So yeah, but the fear of ever getting on stage and, and I've, I've seen this, well, you know, the pitch deck isn't pixel perfect and I need to send this off to somebody first and no, you, you should go out and pitch. 
Yeah, one of my first uh, management meeting pitches with with a very large uh, organization that rhymes with Amazon. Uh, and yeah. we just got slaughtered. It was it was magical. There was like we were there with our investment bankers, and we had a whole team. It was so well rehearsed, and it was just it was just a bomb. Uh, but it was good to get that out of the way. It was a great learning experience, and uh, we refined our pitch after that. Um, so let's not talk about education. So, you know, you've been a you've taught significantly. Um, you know, you're assistant professor at the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. States Military Academy, United States U.S. the United States Military Academy. Sorry about that. Yeah, West, um, West, West, West Point. Point is, that's easier. Yeah. Coach K's Coach K's alma mater. How's that sound? Uh, yeah. That's easier. Thank you. Um, you know, lecturer at the University of Missouri, and both you were uh, visiting faculty, and now uh, we're also adjunct assistant professor at Duke, teaching both undergrads and graduate students in courses on politics, uh, public leadership, and uh, enterprising leadership. So, you know, what are some of the greatest changes that you've seen in university education over the last 10 years, you know, uh, as you've gone through your, your teaching uh, career? Well, you know, back to what you said is, is I, I always got this when I taught because I had kind of done things and like students just like perked up on this. Uh, so, you know, I think, I mean, one is when I was teaching at West Point, I was teaching media and politics and, you know, I was going through theory and all that. I'm like, well, shit, you know, I'm, I'm an hour north of like the greatest media center in the world. Why don't I just start inviting some of the like the luminaries uh, up uh, to give the you know lecture on satire and politics? And sure enough, like Seth Meyers came up one term and Lauren Michael, uh, Michaels came up the next. And um, and so I so I, I think that you're not you're you're very unique, Gavin, but like you're not unique as a student, like thirsting for, um, you know, real, uh, you know, uh, applied knowledge on that. And I've seen that shift. And certainly we did that uh, at the, the course I taught at Duke away from a kind of problem and case centric uh, uh, education where, you know, the professor knows the answer and it's kind of hidden and they're going to walk you through the proper steps to get to that, to really a project centric, um, you, you know, where the, the answer isn't determined. And so the course I taught at uh, Duke was called Mission Driven Startups. And what we fundamentally did was build uh, predominantly technology solutions to public sector, specifically military problems. And so what we did is we recruited problems ahead of the semester. And this might be an elite special forces unit that, that is still assessing their people on like clipboards and paper or, you know, Air Force who is trying to um, do better, you know, data analytics uh, to optimize their fleet. And, you know, you don't know what the answer is, but you're teaching the students the process of how you, you know, very entrepreneur, how you, um, you know, form hypotheses, test those hypotheses with data, build uh, a minimum viable product to exemplify that, give it to the customer, interview customers every week, and then iterate to something better. And, you know, not to, you know, brag, but we typically got like best course ever, uh, you know, that they had taken. And I think, you know, Duke in particular, their whole engineering school is, has really adopted this sort of problem centric approach on this. And I think it's better for the students. Hell, you could 
we, I, I just got an email from one of my students. We've had companies form out of these. So it, it makes the education. Um, and of course, you know, I, I did a PhD. I did plenty of theory stuff. I, I recognize the benefits of theory and, but, but application as well. Yeah, and just to sort of provide a little bit more color of what you're getting at is is before we started the conversation, you know, I'd mentioned the catalyst for this for this podcast was coming out of business school. You learn all the theory, but I had this thirst to learn from people such as yourself that have been there, that have built stuff, that have actually done it. Not to say that wasn't available. You typically have that at the very end when it's your electives, but there's a I think there's a real thirst as you mentioned you know, if you could have Lauren Michaels come in and hear from like the god of uh, of media, fellow Canadian, by the way, um, yep. and uh, you know, there's a thirst for that, and you have there's obvious theory with you know accounting and there's certain fundamentals, but there's nothing better, at least from my standpoint, particularly from a business environment, of like tangible things that you can point to, and you know, you can learn by doing. So yeah. I, I think what I'm hearing is is that you know perhaps more of the shift will be towards real world problem set centric uh, applications as opposed to just like the hardcore theory. Yeah, you, you know, I, when I joined McKinsey, uh, I joined as a, with a PhD, and so they take all of our us kind of oddballs, lawyers, doctors, you know, PhDs, and they send them, uh, they send us to a mini MBA. But it, it's really supposed to approximate the first whole year of MBA school in about six weeks. And, you know, it's eight hours a day. It's, you know, fairly intense and all that. But then they toss you straight on, you know, to, you know, to consulting teams. And so, you know, it's uh, that one or the other was not enough of an education, but having those, you know, really compressed theory you know, practice testing and then real world testing uh, was pretty damn effective. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit now about your your career transitions. So I see you as basically like a badass academic <laughs> who's had this amazing career. You know, you're a multi-sector leader who's led, you've been in the political space, military, government, academic, corporate, entrepreneur. We haven't even talked about nonprofit and then philanthropy, uh, philanthropy as well. You know, you've gone from Kosovo and Baghdad to a flat in Covent Garden in the UK, as you mentioned, when you studied at the London School of Economics. You know, you've gone to the McKinsey, the Assistant Secretary of Public and Intergovernmental Affairs, you know, academia, entrepreneurship, back at academia. Like, how are you able to do these sweeping transitions so effectively? Like, I went from working at Duke to private sector, and it, it's like stark the the ethos and the culture transition are you just built different or talk us through that well you know, my, my wife would say i need to get like a real career and a real career path so you know you know there the there's tons of time of doubt in that in that you know what probably appears to be like seamless transition um you know, I'll, I'll use Flag Exclusive as an example. I was, you know, my, my last job, I was like the lead for innovation for the Department of Defense for the Southeast. I was kind of semi-retired. It really loved it. It was great. And then a, uh, a friend of mine said, hey, um, you know, are you, uh, would you consider helping this private aviation company with their technology? And that was about a year, year and a half, half ago. 
So, you know, now I'm in my mid forties and I used to be much more kind of planner, you know, I'm going to go get it. I'm going to go be the first in the class. I'm going to go, you know, start this company. I'm going to do that. And I've really shifted a bit more of just being open and curious and that helps when you're finding. And then, then when you get these things and these transitions, I mean, a great book is growth mindset. And, you know, the, it's, uh, it's a Dweck book on psychology, but like the core of it, the, the nuts and the bolts is like, you can have a fixed mindset and show up at a place and say, I, you know, I have all the tools that I need and I'm just going to apply them. And I've been forced to like always be in a growth mindset of just simply like being humble, um, coming in in a real, like my job is to learn and learn as, as quickly as possible. And, and then maybe the last thing I'd say is, you know, I, 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 I drew a lot from the special forces time and the number one special forces imperative is understand your operational environment. And each environment has its own, you know, kind of power dynamic, uh, you know, motivators, uh, you know, industry knowledge, all that stuff. And so rapidly understanding this new environment of, oh, I'm a startup founder now and I need to go raise capital. Well, how can I do that world class and who has done this before? Um, and, and that's probably the last thing I'd say is like, I, I assemble a kitchen cabinet really everywhere I go. Um, and I've got some core uh, mentors and peers that I lean on quite a bit as I do these transitions. Well, and that's sort of like a f fascinating, there's two things there. There's obviously the humility and then there's the special forces operational sort of training. The two seem at, like at odds. I, I have no experience in that um, whatsoever, um, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around. I, I, to me, going through ranger school and special forces seems like alpha male, you know, go, 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 you know, kick ass and call names. Um, but at the same time, you have this humil humility so that you can, you know, adjust and modify to, to very different situations. Is my perception of special forces training just completely wrong? Uh, because it almost feels like it's this sort of hard yet soft mentality uh, that maybe I just have the wrong perception of um, of what you guys do. Well, you know, special forces is 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 a difference. So I, I went to ranger school like right after I graduated Duke, or like within the first six months. And there, it's just like you gotta like physically tough, and you know, go through the suck of not having food and and much sleep. Special forces training, really, they're, they're, you can't go into it like straight out of school. You have to be more senior. And, you know, there's a reason the, you know, the model of special forces is, you know, quiet professionals. Um, I mean, everything on uh, in there. Hold on. Is that, a, is that a jet right there? Yeah, that's jet. You know, we, we, we've got some background noise. That's uh, awesome. Here, but, I, yeah. I like to keep it in, but I'm just sort of like, you know, you know you're working right there on the tarmac. That's awesome. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to cut you off. So you said, uh, was it humble professionalism? Well, Sorry. Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, yeah. Quiet professionals on this, and everything really it works through a team on this. So, um, you, you know, one thing that that helped when I went through Ranger School and definitely through uh, Special Forces Qualification Course is I just took the approach because it can very much be a sort of 
Lord of the Flies. I'm in it for me. I'm in it to get my go and, and it doesn't matter. And someone gave me some good advice is like, focus all your efforts on other people and help them get their go and help them get through and uh, be unselfish about it. And it will come back to you. Um, so, um, but special forces training is, is quite a bit different than, than ranger, uh, training. It's, it's much more of a, um, they're testing, not if you're tough or not just that you're tough, but that uh, you have this rare quality of being able to handle uncertainty and, uh, most people can't. And so they're, you know, it's much more of a mental exercise going through special forces training. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what you just mentioned right there is, you know, helping other people get their go is like the ultimate leadership quality. So it doesn't matter if you're in the public sector, private sector, if you're a sort of benevolent leader that can help raise others. I mean, that's just fundamental good leadership advice that, you know, you obviously have this amazing decorated career, but you're humble enough to be able to put, you know, other people forward ahead of you. Um, is probably a fantastic skill that would allow you to excel in any sort of situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, like certainly now, I mean, this job is like, you know, part um, McKinsey, part startup, part politics, but a large part, like 90% of it is people, you know, my executive team, how do I build and form a cohesive executive team, especially considering, you know, they have a hundred years of experience in private aviation and I have, you know, seven full-time months on this. And so it, it, it was good training early on really to, you know, focus in on that is how can I set each one of these folks up for success? What, what obstacles can I get out of their way? Uh, not just more, what, what more tasks can I give them, but how, how can I really and get them working on their highest and best use, the stuff that brings them joy, that makes them happy, it makes them better employees. You can, it's a better vibe for the, for the, for the team. I think about that pretty much all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, now, is there advice that you give for veterans transitioning to civilian life? Like we actually have a lot of service men and women in the Duke MBA program. And, you know, I never had any access to and just, you know, phenomenal men and women, some of the brightest and hardest working folks out there. Um, and you've obviously, you know, helped a lot of people in the transition. Like what, what advice, um, you know, any resources or, or any, you know, wisdom that you'd like to share? Well, I mean, humility is probably the biggest one is I've I've seen a lot of people transition out out of the military and especially in the last two decades where, you know, the military has largely been lionized, you know, just like they are the, you know, the masters of, of leadership and they can do anything and all that is, you know, I, I give some pretty frank advice. I'm like, look, you didn't get a master's class in leadership in the military. You got one in military leadership, maybe. Uh, but the military is a huge, slow-moving bureaucracy. So you know how to operate in a large organization. Um, what drives companies, small companies, big companies, is really what is different than what drives military units. So I've seen a lot of guys and gals transition out. And I think the, 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 the there's some data I remember from my time at the VA that that the vast majority of them like transition three jobs in their first couple of years. 
Um, and I think there's a lot of frustration, you know, I certainly saw it where like, you know, I was this kind of badass green beret and nobody really cared outside. Everyone would find it. Thank you for your service. But it's like, could I actually be a productive member on a McKinsey consulting team? And, um, I had some huge deficiencies, huge deficiencies. Um, but I didn't think I did when, when I thought I, you know, was, well, hell, I've done all this hard stuff. How hard could this be? Uh, it was hard, you know? So, um, so, and, and then I've seen folks, you know, we, we had a senior leader here leave because, you know, his, his child was asking, Hey daddy, you know, when, when can you go back in the air force? Cause I'll see you more often. So don't expect it's going to be easier out in the, out in the private sector. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's all the tough love I give. And I, you know, for your listeners out there, I'm, 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 I'm generally on their team uh, of, of how I could help. I've, one of the blessings of this weird life I've lived is I've got kind of a pretty wide range of uh, different contacts and ex- experiences. So uh, I also just offer to help. And, um, and then the last thing I'll say is this is, and this is for college students or for the military is, is the more specific you, you can be in your search and your transition, um, the more help you'll get is I've had many called, Oh, well, I want to do business or I want to do, you know, large business or startup or something. I'm like, well, what, you know, like what, if you could work in a startup doing anything, what would that be? And th- then I can start helping you because I love introducing passionate people to passionate people. I'm less interested in, in, you know, you know, the, let, let me introduce you to this person so you can have coffee and help like give them counseling on, on who they want to be. So, um, by being more specific and saying, I want to do space, I want to get into space or I want to get into aviation or I want to, you know, live in Durham and do X. Then I can be like, oh, I got, you know, my friend Gavin or, or Ari or whoever that I could connect them with. Shout out to Ari. He makes connections, including this one right here. All right. So we're getting ready to land this bird and I know how important it is to be on time. So this is, we go into rapid fire questions. I give no prep. So these are right out of the blue. Are you okay. ready? Okay. Sure. Here you go. All right. You have four girls. Uh, do you have any authority whatsoever in your house anymore now that you have four girls or you just, <laughs> no, or, or can you command respect? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've got, a, I've got, uh, I've got significant authority in my house. Good for you. I got got to, otherwise it'd just be chaos. Good for you. At what age do kids get cell phones? Uh, As late as possible. I'm hoping that, you know, uh, kick that down the road. None of of my kids have cell phones. Good. I agree as well. You mentioned growth mindset, but what's your favorite book other than that? Uh, You know, A Man's Search for Meaning is just a phenomenal one. Whenever you think like life um, is bad for you, like go, go read that book. Uh, you played men's rugby at uh, LSC. Uh, is rugby tougher than American football? Rugby is an, is an incredible sport. I'm I'm shocked it is not more popular here in America. Um, you know, office flows to defense. You're running all the time, all different body styles. So I'm a huge fan of rugby. Yeah, I um, I was a lock. So it's it's definitely different uh, whether you're a wing or you play in the scrum, but. Uh, yeah, I, I broke my leg playing American football. I never had any 
bad injuries other than uh, concussions for rugby, but I'm the same. I love it. But that's also my Canadian upbringing. It's popular in, in uh, Commonwealth nations. Uh, favorite. Speaking of Commonwealth nations, uh, favorite thing about living in London? Oh, it's everything. It, it's, you know, it's, it's New York, Hollywood, um, you know, all, all, and the world uh, and D.C. all together. And I lived in Covent Garden and it was all like like a five minute jog from uh, where I live. So uh, fantastic town. I love it. All right. Last one of the Blue Devils going to win a national championship this year. They're always going to win a national champ. I've never filled out an NCAA bracket without Duke winning it all. But I love this team. The game against Wake was, I saw this article, like, this is the Death Star version. I just love this team a lot. And, um, but I'm the perennial optimist, but I'm especially optimistic this year. Yeah, I'm the same way. I actually asked Reggie Love why President Obama never always picked UNC over the Blue Devils. And he said that Obama loved big public schools. So, But I trusted his bracket. He was awesome at picking them. But yeah, this team's great. They have all the pieces and it's Coach K's farewell tour. So let's hope for the best. And with that, we are right on time. So Tommy, this has been incredible. You have a very successful career. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Uh, encourage people to uh, check you out. Check out Flag exclusive and uh, really appreciate you taking the time great well uh, i appreciate it and uh thanks a ton gavin good to know you